One of the uh, great challenges of my experience in life has been trying to figure out how to be helpful to my kids as they grew up through the school years. And um, I remember early on feeling that um, my major responsibility was to help them be really successful in their studies. I had, for some reason, had that internal motivation light go on early for me as a kid. And so I would try and describe to them the advantages of getting good grades and all the doors that would open up for you in life. Or I would then try to describe the, 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 the note-taking methodology that I had used. And then I would try and, and describe how cool it was to, to have teachers who uh, were like friends and mentors because you spent time with them and they liked you because they saw that you worked hard and did good. I tried to describe in so many different ways to my kids what I thought it would, uh, they could be doing to be successful. And when that didn't really sink in, I, I would sometimes try incentive programs where, like, I'll pay you this much if you get A's. And, and then when that didn't work, I tried strategies that were more like negative incentive issues, like the, the, the stick versus the carrot. I would take away privileges, and I would try and wake them up. And I discovered along the way that, that all of these different methodologies I was trying just were not enough. That it, it took for each of my kids, in some sense, getting to a place where they felt the full consequences of uh, what was not getting done. Um, to create the change of perspective, to light the fire within them that led them uh, onto a different trail. I don't know if you can relate to any of that or whether you've had similar experiences, maybe uh, with your own children or uh, with your own parents, uh, maybe not even in the, the school realm, but in some other sphere of life. The big question is, how do you get through? When you see things about uh, somebody that really would benefit from changing, that would actually help them if they could make that change or help others through them uh, as a result of that change, how do you penetrate the resistance sometimes to seeing it and to responding to the truth? Well, that really is, in a big sense, the, the question we're going to explore today. And we're going to really uh, take it to its highest level and, and simply ask, what what does God do in these circumstances? When God's first and preferred approaches to shaping human character uh, don't work or aren't seemingly enough, what does God do to bring about the change that's needed? Uh, I know somebody who could tell you something about that. He actually does tell you something about that in our lesson from Daniel chapter four today. And if you're just joining us Today, we've been looking through the book of Daniel at the life story of one of God's um, servants. The man Daniel is a Jewish uh, young man. He's now growing up to be an older Jewish man living in the culture of Babylon. And we've been studying how uh, he lives with this rather remarkable kind of clarity and courage, what we've been calling a lion heart, amidst all of the fragmenting, distracting, and wayward um, patterns of the life in in the culture he lived in, Babylon. But uh, in this particular uh, moment in the story of, of Daniel, um, we actually see a shift of focus away from a, a study of how Daniel and his compatriots, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the other Jewish boys, are living faithfully in the midst of Babylon. And we actually turn now to 
a rather first-person narrative, the story of one individual who is, in some sense, the least likely convert to the way of God that we had met thus far in the storyline. And the witness, the first-person teller of the story here, identifies himself and his target audience and actually the purpose of his message in the very first verse Uh, of Daniel chapter four, and I want to read it to you. King Nebuchadnezzar, that's uh, who's speaking here, uh, to the peoples who live in all the world, that's who I'm addressing. This was an ancient manner of correspondence or address. People would introduce themselves first, they would describe who it is they're talking to, and then they'd give a quick summary of what they were after in the message they were about to pass by. And so he says, I'm King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm addressing the peoples who live in all the world. This is not just a narrow message, this is something that will be useful to everybody, he is basically saying. May you prosper greatly. His desire, his intention with the message he's about to share in Daniel chapter four, is to bring a greater kind of prospering to people as a result of what he's experienced. So he goes on from there to the topic of the proclamation, and this is what he says. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, if you know anything about the story of King Nebuchadnezzar up to this moment, you're thinking, say, what? Nebuchadnezzar is saying that? This is the guy, if I remember, in the last chapter, uh, made this 90-foot-tall golden statue to himself and demanded that everybody in the land bow down in front of it on pain of being thrown into a fiery furnace if they did not recognize that his kingdom and his majesty and his glory ought to be everybody's focus. Not God's, Nebuchadnezzar's. What in the world happened to this guy? How is it that he's now saying to us in effect, look, what I represent is pretty much just dust, my friends. You want to give your life to something? Then make your life, your life's object, the service of the sovereign God and his kingdom, because only he is forever. And we're just passing through. That's what he's saying, in effect. So how does this happen? How do we account for the massive change uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's life? Well, he says it all started like this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, content and prosperous. I was just going through my life, and I was just living the good life that I had been enjoying all along. Now, when he says this, uh, we need to know a little bit more about this to get the real picture here. Archaeologists and historians have uncovered a lot about the ancient kingdom of Babylon. We actually have, still have lots and lots of artifacts from this particular period in history. And we know that the most imposing of the king's several palaces, he's talking about his life in that palace, the most impressive of them, and by the way, he had built about 24 of them. He had about 24 houses. The most amazing of them stood on this low hill that had this dramatic view just 600 feet away 
of a ziggurat, of the best of the ziggurats, which were the ancient version of skyscrapers. This one was called the Tower of Babel. How many of you ever heard of that one? Okay, so he had this commanding view of this spec, one of the most spectacular art, uh, archaeological uh, creations or, or architectural creations ever. And in this palace, he's surrounded by just colossal luxury. We know because, again, we've dug this up. Uh, we found uh, relics of this. It had uh, walls made of the finest yellow brick and floors of white and mottled sandstone. There were these magnificent artistic reliefs uh, all over the interior spaces of the, of the building. And it was done in this vivid blue glaze that adorned various surfaces of the house and had gigantic basalt lions guarding the entrances of the house. And if you go to the Pergamum Museum in, um, in Berlin to this day, you could actually see some of this stuff. But the most impressive thing about, uh, about what Nebuchadnezzar had built in his, in his palaces were, were the gardens. How many of you ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? They were regarded as the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And what made the gardens so uh, stupendous is that they were actually built in terraces stacked one on top of another. And each of these terraces was supported by a concentric circles of these massive colonnades that supported the next level, almost like wedding cake platforms. And they went up 70 feet high. That's five stories in modern parlance. And on the very top of those uh, of, of the hanging garden, there was a, a platform so deep with so much dirt on it that it actually had large trees, deep-rooted trees growing out of it, as well as all kinds of flowering bushes and beautiful uh, flowers of many kinds. But even more remarkable was, was how they took care of it because being five stories up in a very hot climate, you need water. And so they had constructed on the inside of the colonnades that supported this entire structure these, these phenomenally engineered engines that actually moved water up. They were powered by slaves 24 hours a day that dragged water up from the Euphrates River below and took it to the highest part of the gardens and kept everything just fecund and fertile and green and overflowing and lush. And this was the place in the cool of the day when Nebuchadnezzar could just walk and think, wow, I have made it. Literally, I made it and I am making it. Right? So you get this kind of, this vision of Nebuchadnezzar when he says, I'm at home in my palace, content and, and prosperous. Now, to, 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 to put a point on it, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just succeed in recreating paradise. And by the way, uh, Babylon is built roughly where um, some scholars believe ancient Eden was. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had not only recreated paradise, he lived in the treehouse in the middle of it. This was his life. So let me go back to the question that I posed at the start. When God showers somebody with an unusual amount of, of grace, with, with life and liberty and love and learning resources beyond the common measure, uh, and I will just point out to you that today most of us live at a Nebuchadnezzar level and don't recognize it because we're part of the most affluent culture ever. We are the new Babylon. Uh, how, when people live with this level uh, 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 of abundance, but do not produce 
from their lives the fruit that God is looking for. As, as Nebuchadnezzar was not producing the fruit from his life that God was looking for, when, when God entrusts somebody with incredible knowledge uh, of his plans and his desires for the future, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had been given two different dreams already that described the future out there and really were inviting him to adapt his life and align himself to serving what God was going to do in that future. But he had ignored that. He had not aligned his life in that way. When, when, when God gives a person a picture like that and they don't change, they don't respond to it. When God gives somebody dramatic demonstrations of his saving power as Nebuchadnezzar had had. I mean, he had watched as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace and then somehow preserved and brought out alive, and Nebuchadnezzar had been just stunned by that, the way some people are stunned by the, the, the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you've seen God's saving power demonstrated in history like that, and still it doesn't result in more than just a short-lived kind of faith, a, a little bit more uh, commitment to God. When, when that happens, What's God going to do? When, when, his, when his kid is not responding to the lessons, the carrot, the stick, it's just none of it seems to be working to produce the changes that, that God knows will be so good for that child or for the people that that child influences. What's a heavenly parent going to do? I've wrestled with this, as I told you at the beginning. But on the grander scale, how does God do that? What does he do with his sometimes wayward kids. Well, I will tell you, says Nebuchadnezzar, God may find some way to shake your tree. It's the first thing he may do. Uh, for the king of Babylon, the shaking came in the form of a, of a nightmare. Uh, he was prone to having these dreams, as you may know from the story, uh, but this one was a very, very bad dream. It was very disturbing, more than the one he had back in chapter two. He said, I had a dream that made me afraid. I was really afraid. And he goes on to say, before me stood a tree in the middle of the land, and the tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. And under the tree, the beasts of the field found shelter, and birds of the air lived in its branches, and from it every creature was fed. And it was just a lovely, uh, comforting uh, pastoral scene that Nebuchadnezzar has until the second part of the dream began to unfold. And I looked, he said, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit and let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches and let the stump and its roots remain in the ground. That's the only somewhat nice thing about part two of this dream is that at least the stump and the roots get to stay. They're not ground up and yanked out. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and it's very disturbing to him and, 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 he, and he does just like he did back in chapter two. He calls in all of the wise men of Babylon to help him figure it out, the astrologers and the sorcerers and the soothsayers, and, and they listen to the dream, and, 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 and this time, they, you know, the symbolism is not hard to figure out, right? Who lives in the treehouse? Um, 
but they probably are scared to say what it really means. So he calls in Daniel, and Daniel tells him the truth. Daniel reads the implications of this dream for him very clearly. He says, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. And you can just see Nebuchadnezzar swelling and pride and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bad, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> and then the other shoe drops and Daniel says, this heavenly messenger that you're seeing in the dream um, is telling you that you have not been fruitful in the way that matters to God. The, the resplendence, your version of prosperity, is not God's version. It's not the kind of fruit he was hoping would get produced. With all that he's given you, with all this capacity you have, you've been guilty of colossal pride. You, you've been incredibly self-indulgent. You have failed to be kind to the oppressed, he says. You know, this is one of the major reasons why God gives us resources, so that we will establish resourceful relationships with people that don't have resourceful relationships. And Nebuchadnezzar had not been kind uh, to those without uh, resources. Now, he wasn't all bad. He had some decent spiritual bark, even if it didn't go that deep. He greatly admired Daniel, at least recognized Daniel as a, as a wonderful servant of God. He gave credit to God several times for some of the wonderful things that he had done. But the fact remained that at the heart of the tree, what was carved on the core of the tree was an enormously selfish attitude. It was once expressed well by uh, by the dictator Mussolini who once wrote, I worship no God but my sovereign will. I wonder sometimes if, if, if that isn't what is fundamentally most carved on the heart of the tree of American life today. I, I, I'm going to get a little dark here for a second, so hang with me. I'll come out of it. But I wonder if we in the midst of the amazing affluence of our time and the radical individualism of our time have come to be so focused on having our tastes, our preferences, our will done that we've almost completely lost the ability to conceive of the possibility that God might have a will for the use of our lives and resources that's different than ours. That he may have given us what he's given us for purposes different than, than, than we're chasing. Um, I, I read that, that statement um, about this, the Mussolini statement, I worship no God save my sovereign will, and I wonder, how true is that? How true is that of us? I contrast that statement with the statement of Jesus, who was the king of kings, and it was written upon his heart, Yet not what I want, Father, but thy will be done. Even at the end of his life, Garden of Gethsemane, uh, this man who has lived out in the most beautiful way the establishment of all these resourceful relationships, he's just resourcing people all over, still at the end of his life says, gosh, maybe there's even more I can do to serve your will than I've been doing. Yet not what I want, but what you will, Father, thy will be done. What's written on the tree at the core of your heart. Who sits on the throne? 
whose will is most important uh, in your life? Uh, and how do you know? How do you know if you really have given your life over to God? How do you know if you really have God sitting on the throne instead of just your personal Nebuchadnezzar on the throne? How do we know that? My theory is that if we have got his spirit moving and flowing through us, it's going to produce the kind of fruit that we've seen thus far in the story of Daniel and his compatriots. Um, For one thing, um, because God is kind, that kind of kindness is going to flow out from us, even towards difficult people. One of the stunning things in this whole story is how kind Daniel continues to be to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar did to Daniel? He, he invaded his country. He slaughtered a lot of his neighbors and family members. He put him in chains. He led him hundreds of miles to a distant land. He enslaved him, indoctrinated, changed his name, kind of wrecked Daniel's life in a lot of, of ways. And yet you still see Daniel willing the good of the king, extending grace to him. It's almost a foretaste of that attitude you see from Jesus on the cross when he looks down at these people that are cheering his agony and says, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. They just know not what they do. And if you are rooted in God's life, if his spirit is moving through you, you're going to have a greater quality of kindness and forbearance uh, and compassion, even for difficult people than the average person uh, will. Uh, Secondly, because the Lord himself is holy, he's pure, um, you're going to have a tendency, like we see again in Daniel's life, to avoid defiling yourself with the the bad food that that the Babylonian society is throwing your way all the time. I mean, we saw that in in chapter 1. Daniel just sort of said, I'm choosing a different diet. Um, You're going to be thinking about that. Because you're going to start thinking, I'm worried. I do not want to be just soaking in all of this bad stuff that, that the society is throwing at me. I'm going to f- focus myself more, as the apostle Paul puts it in one of his letters, on that which is noteworthy, noble, and pure. I want to I feed more on the good stuff than on all of the, the gossip and the vitriol and the trash that's out there and, and plentifully available on almost every table of our time. You're going to be thoughtful about how you maintain your distinctiveness and your health and your, and your holiness. Uh, I, thirdly, I think that if, if God is on the throne of your life, if he's the one, his will is guiding things, that, then, then you're going to ha- tend to present um, your stresses to him in prayer and anxiety, and you're going to be doing less um, anesthetizing. You know what I mean by ne- Anesthetizing. You're going, to be, you're, going to, you're going to need substances less to sort of chill you down because you're going to be trusting God at, at the core of, of your being. And because he is the one and only Lord, you're just not going to be out there bowing down to all of the golden idols of our time. The shiny objects that have everybody else's attention, that are on every page of every magazine now, it's just not going to be your supreme fascination anymore. Um, you, won't, you just won't be obsessed with those things. And because you serve Daniel's God, you're, you're going to regard your position and your resources, just as Daniel did, as given to you for positive influence on behalf of the ultimate kingdom. 
You're going to look at your job that way. You're going to look at the circle of, of influence you have in your school, in, in your friendship circles. You're going to see these as wonderful places God has given you to be a blessing and, and an influence for his, his kingdom. Jesus you know, said that um, you can't fool uh, Mother Nature. You know that Jesus said that? He didn't put it in exactly those words. He said, you will know a tree by its fruit. You know, you can't can't lie about it. The fruit tells you what's in the tree. It tells you about the health of the tree. And so if our lives are marked by what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control, humility, courage, a passion for justice, if this is the fruit that's being produced, chances are you've got a really healthy tree. The Christ is on the throne of your life, and he's moving through the branches of your life in a wonderful way. But if it's still mostly fear and anxiety and anger and envy and, you know, lust and gluttony and go down the list, check who's on the throne. Check where you're rooted, uh, because those things don't come out of um, a a, a tree that is um, rooted in the right stuff, in the right one, uh, where Jesus is on the throne. I, I, I know that's really heavy. I, I want to say I see a ton of great fruit when I look around the life of this church. I really do. I'm, I'm not judging or criticizing, but I am asking myself and inviting you to ask yourself, uh, what's, what's going on at the center of our lives? Uh, because if a tree isn't really bearing much of the fruit that God intends, um, then God, who Jesus says to us at one point, he, my father, he's, um, he's a gardener. My, 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 he's a vine dresser. And, and he's going to take action when he sees that it's not producing the way he had intended. And, and, and he'll take some measures, I'm going to guess, kind of like he did with Nebuchadnezzar here. In fact, I think there's sort of a pattern in Nebuchadnezzar's story that's worth paying attention to. First of all, if he wants our attention, he's going to shake our tree. That, that will often be the first thing he does, to shake the tree. And it's possible that God is doing that with some of us right now, that our tree is getting shaken. It, it could be that crack in, uh, in your health that is actually God's way of reminding you, you are going too fast. You need to slow down. It could be that that, 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 that challenge to your physical well-being is, is designed to help you make to think more about how am I spending my time? I mean, maybe I want to be reallocating my priorities so that I use the time I have left wisely. It might, it might be that you're feeling some tremor in some branch of your family right now, and that's God shaking to try and invite you to pour more energy into that relationship. You know, give more attention to that person uh, in your life. Or maybe God is using some change in your, in your social or your vocational life to stir a re-examination of the core values by which you're operating. Uh, maybe the loss of, of luster on the lifestyle that you have through some financial change is, is God encouraging you to put your roots down in something more secure, something, something that gives greater significance, something that no termite or tempest can touch. Uh, in one way or another, I'm going to guess, just percentage-wise, God has shaken some trees in this room. Some of us are feeling that shaking because he loves us. 
And he wants us to change in ways that bring blessing to us and the people we uh, can influence. Uh, If he's doing that, there is probably also a second measure that he will take. Um, And that is, he'll bring before you some Daniel who can help you interpret the shaking. Uh, Maybe it's it's a spouse or a family member who will be the Daniel voice in your life. Maybe it's a friend. It could even be somebody that you think of as an enemy. I've told this story before, but I, there was this guy in college. I was going through a breakdown in a, in a dating relationship that I, and I couldn't understand why she wasn't interested in me anymore. And, and this guy, who I really thought of as an enemy, I did not like him, said, you know, there are some things that you need to change about you. And, and, and you won't change them. And I says, well, what do you mean I won't change them? He says, oh, you won't change them because you don't see them. And the reason you don't see them is because you're using them to see. Your whole way of thinking and seeing is messed up and needs to get reexamined. And I hated to hear him say that. And I knew at the moment it came out of his mouth, he was probably right. It does not feel good often when Daniel comes to us. It did not feel good for Nebuchadnezzar to hear what Daniel had to say. It didn't feel good for King David to hear what Nathan has to say. It doesn't feel good to me to hear what my wife often has to say. <laughs> or my kids. But, but the truth, though it hurts, is our hope. It's the thing that sets us free. It's, it's the thing we need more than anything else. So, so maybe God is sending you a Daniel right now. Listen to that person. Maybe the shaking has already happened. Maybe somebody's tried to help you to, to, to make the shift, to, to make the, the turn that you need to make, to renounce your sins by doing what is right, which is what Daniel literally says to Nebuchadnezzar. Turn away, renounce your sins, and go in the right direction. Do the right stuff now. But of this, this third truth, I'm absolutely sure, when he starts the shaking and if he sends the Daniel, he gives you some time to respond. And maybe you're living in that season where God's waiting for you to respond. We see in this particular story that God is really patient with Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible says that God is patient. God is patient and kind. The 1 Corinthians 13 says he's remarkably Patient and kind. He hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things, the, the, the Bible says. He has a steadfast, enduring kind of love for us. And, and when he had done so much already to reach Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he waited a little longer, the Bible says. Uh, he, did, he, he gave him some time to respond uh, to the news. But Nebuchadnezzar tells him, tells us himself, and I quote, that 12 months later, a whole nother year later, God found him, and I quote, walking on the roof of the royal palace, and you know what, how beautiful that place was that we just described, saying to himself, this is, this is rich, is not this the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Woe to any leader who thinks it's all about him. I don't care what political party you come from. And not just 
governmental leaders, but leaders in households, leaders in businesses, leaders in circles of friends. Woe to anyone that gets to thinking. They built it all, they did it all, it's all about them. It was only then, that moment, with that proclamation coming off the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, still hanging in the air, actually, the Bible says, that the heavenly gardener did what he had to do. And it was a paradox. He wanted to save the tree, so he cut it down. He cut it down. The Bible says that while the king's words were still in the air, a voice from, came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. Seven years will go by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. It's by grace that you have had all that you've had and you just never saw it. You never woke up to it. As near as historians can figure out, it was at this point Nebuchadnezzar had a massive nervous breakdown. He completely lost it. For seven years, he was out of his, literally out of his mind before he suddenly regained and came to his senses. And, and we know that this is the kind of thing that actually happened. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie The Madness of King George. You can get it on Netflix. Um, it's an incredible uh, Hollywood um, expression of an actual period in, in the history of England when the king of England went through a period of temporary insanity and actually was crawling around like a wild animal for a whole period of time and eventually snapped out of it and recovered a capacity to lead in a very different kind of of way. Maybe you don't need a film to color the picture in for you. Maybe you've gotten to a place like that yourself. Maybe you've had a, a crazy season of your life where you really kind of lost all sense of who you were, where you were going, your, your hold on things. You know, the divorce happened, the, the job was lost, the health crisis came, the loved one died, something happened, and you were just swirling around, just kind of grasping, just not knowing how it would ever be any better, feeling like it was total darkness. Let me, let me remind you that there, there's opportunity in the darkness. There's opportunity in the darkness. Um, I want to be really clear in saying this first part before I hit the second part. The first part is this. Not every uh, collapse, every uh, crashing tree, every moment of pain is God doing it to you, okay? Sometimes stuff just happens. Sometimes tragedy strikes and losses occur and there's not a spiritual lesson intended for you in it, although there can sometimes be one discovered in spite of it or in the midst of it. Uh, sometimes just pain happens. Jesus said, in this world, you're gonna suffer. It's part of the deal in a broken world before it's fully redeemed. But sometimes God brings the tree down. Sometimes there is a message. Uh, I, I think there might have been in my own life um, uh, many years ago. Uh, some of you know, you heard me tell the story. You're probably tired of the story. But I was a young man who, 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 was, who was staking his security and his stability and his sense of significance entirely 
on the kinds of things people do. I, I, I had a sense of identity that was very tied to my dad is a successful politician and my uncle is a successful uh, politician. Much of my sense of security in life was based on me, my being part of this all-American happy family and a great deal of my sense of prosperity lay in the fact that I lived in this nine-bedroom home on a 10-acre uh, estate. Um, and then in a space of a few short months, the congressional race was lost and the family was split by divorce and the palace went up in a fire, chop, 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 and the tree of my life came crashing down. And I went into a period of, of madness, of temporary madness. I had been a recreational alcohol and drug user. I became a chronic alcohol and drug abuser. I was just feeling around in the darkness like a wild animal. I was just lost. I was like Nebuchadnezzar or King George. But I'm grateful for that season now. Uh, not for everything in it, but for its ultimate impact in my life. Because what I found is that by the grace of God, that breakdown became a breakthrough for me. Sometimes we need a breakdown before we can make the breakthrough. I wish it weren't so. I just know it's true for many of us as kids, even old-bodied kids. That season of madness for me led to a new sense of identity as a servant of the kingdom, a new sense of security as a child of the king, a new feeling of prosperity as an heir of the uh, graces of God and, and the mansions of heaven, not these ones on earth. And out of the stump of that old life, God was kind. He didn't rip out the stump. But out of the stump of that old life grew a different kind of life, a better kind of life, a more abundant sort of life for me. Maybe you've got your own version of that story. But I just want to conclude with the question that I began with today. How does God reach a person when his first and preferred approaches don't bring about the change that he seeks. How does a loving God get through to someone? Well, someday, if you're in heaven, you're going to meet Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to meet one of the great saints who was once merely the king of Babylon. And you can listen to him tell his story of this. In the meantime, take it from somebody not quite a saint, very much a sinner. This is how it's going to happen, maybe. Maybe. The Savior will shake your tree. He will bring into your life some Daniel to help you understand the truth. He will wait as patiently as he can, as long as he possibly can. But if all else fails and the watchword of your life suddenly becomes timber, please, in the midst of the pain of that, consider the possibility that it is not the acts of anarchy at work, but rather the blessed blade of God trying to bring about a greater kind of harvest in your life. Would you please pray with me? Lord and God, we thank you for your word we thank you that you love us enough to challenge us, to shake us up, to, 
to, to call us to a different kind of way in life. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to recognize your voice when it comes. Help us to respond to the shaking, to the word of truth, to the opportunity that you've given us so patiently in our time that we might find life that is truly life, life abundant and eternal. This we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.